beginning a series. It's a four-part series over the next four Sundays, which John Bodley and Debbie and I are going to do between us on the subject that Jesus talked more about than almost anything else. He spoke more about it than he talked about faith or heaven and hell or prayer or love or a whole bunch of things. The, the only subject which he spoke more about was the kingdom of God. The subject is money, a subject that I'm sure will be very much in the minds of many of us here. We're right now in really an extraordinary cost of living crisis. Inflation is at its highest for 40 years. The cost of food escalating, energy, it just seems to be, oh my goodness, and accommodation costs are also increasing. Uh, Speaking to some of you, I hear worries about how you're going to heat your homes, pay for food and rent and keep businesses going and the people that you employ in work. And of course, this is hitting those who are already struggling financially the most. And so we want to speak into something that will be of concern to all of us, probably, if not just most of us. But money was evidently a concern also for Jesus. As I said, he talked about it a lot. For instance, he talks about money when he's teaching on just tons of things, talking about forgiveness, the nature of God, what the kingdom of God looks like, uh, loving our neighbor, God's heart for the lost, planning, salvation, trusting God, and so on. When challenging the Pharisees on their misplaced worship, and when looking at what thwarts growth, he talks about money. He tells parables about a rich young fool, a lost coin, payments of talents to workers and a merchant who sold everything to buy a pearl of great price. And that list is by no means exhaustive. It might surprise you just how much Jesus mentions money. And you might legitimately ask the question, why? I wonder why. I believe the primary reason that the greatest teacher who has ever lived made money one of the two main topics of his teaching boils down to this. Money is the number one rival to God for the human heart. God invites us to look to him to fulfill all of our deepest needs, all of our desires, our security, our significance, identity, our happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment can all be found in him. But we're told a different message continually. As these adverts I'm going to show you suggests money beckons to us and says, come to me for all these things. Money says, if you focus your life on me, I will give you security. Buy the perfect house in the right neighborhood and you will be fulfilled. Pay for the best education and become the person you aspire to be. Own a lot of money and you'll have what the world calls financial freedom. You want inner peace? Purchase it on your American Express card. And on and on. Money promises the desires of our hearts, but the truth is those promises are hollow. If money bought us happiness, it would stand to reason that the happiest people in the world would be those with the most money. Believe me, that is absolutely not the case. As a pastor, I've sat with people who are hugely wealthy and suicidal. And it's just an extraordinary thing. Money does not buy happiness. 
Howard Hughes was an American businessman, record-setting pilot, and film producer. He was one of the most influential and richest people in the world during his lifetime. He was estimated to have a personal fortune of over $2 billion. But his money couldn't make him happy. He spent his final decades as a recluse and died a miserable, lonely billionaire. A recent study of lottery winners found that beyond the initial moment of celebration, winning large sums of money didn't actually have a significant long-term positive effect on the winner's happiness nor on their mental health. If people were unfulfilled in life before the win, the money didn't fix that, and in some cases, it exacerbated the problems that the people already had. Or as the actor Jim Carrey, who has struggled with depression all of his life, put it, I wish everybody would get rich and famous and get everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Only God can give us the desires of our hearts. Only God can give us true security and fulfillment and identity and freedom and peace. And so as we begin this series on money, I want us to consider the question, given that money is the number one rival to God for the human heart. Which is in first place in your heart or in my heart? Today I want to look at a passage in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got a Bible, you can look at it up in Matthew chapter 6. I'm just going to read straight through 19 to 24, and then I'll unpack what Jesus is saying. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also the eye is the lamp of the body if your eyes are healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eyes are unhealthy your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light within you is darkness how great is that darkness no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. First thing he asks us to consider is this. Where is our treasure? Where is it? So we go back to verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Etc. In Luke 12, 33, he has provide for yourselves, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. And you may note the word for yourselves has occurred there a few times. Many Christians subconsciously read what Jesus says here about not storing up treasure as a call to selflessness. But actually, that's far from what he's saying. The humanistic philosopher Immanuel Kant, who doesn't look to me like a very happy fella, he thought that if a person benefits from their activity, there is something inherently wrong with that activity. And the highest possible motive for a human being is to be selfless. And so for centuries, Christians have latched onto that idea and are doing their very best to be selfless. But Jesus is not actually saying that. He's not saying don't use money in ways that will benefit you personally. Not at all. Did you note there it says store up for yourselves. 
provide purses for yourselves. So Jesus seems to be appealing to a motive of what's best for me personally in the long term. And in the context of the passage makes it clear that he's talking about money and possessions. Now some teachers have used this idea to create an expectation that if you are generous, which usually means sowing into their ministry, then you're guaranteed loads of money in return. To be clear, that teaching known as the prosperity gospel is an aberration of the truth of scripture. But many times Jesus is recorded as appealing to our desire to find what is best for us. He says, come to me if you are weary, heavy laden, if you're burdened, and I'll give you rest. That sounds like a good deal. I've come, he said, that they may have life and have it to the full. The Bible clearly teaches that when we follow Jesus, when we walk in his steps, it will turn out better for us if we do that. And the same is true about money as it is about every other subject that he taught on. Handling our treasure God's way, as he reveals it through the Bible, is going to result in blessing for you and me. But crucially, we need to invest it and store it in the right place. Jesus is asking here, where is your treasure? Where are you investing your money? On earth, in temporal things, or in heaven with eternal returns? See, treasures on earth are subject to a number of problems. Basically, everything we have is, is decaying. It's going in one downward direction, as I've been made very aware of recently. In the summer, I uh, was up a scaffold tower painting our 120-year-old windows. I say painting, really the painting bit was like the icing on the cake. I got up there with a screwdriver and started poking around thinking some flaking paint and maybe a little tiny bit of rot and then just dug holes almost straight through the window in some places and uh, in one window I actually had to rebuild from scratch a completely new windowsill and then um, just so much rotted wood and then I filled those holes with multiple kilograms of one of the best products known to man which is Ron Seal two-part wood filler. Basically, wood rots, and metal, at least ferrous metals, rust. So I had some sections of our beloved 20-year-old Saab filled and resprayed a few years ago, and already in places the paint is blistering, it's turning brown as the rust is growing, threatening to eat it away, and challenging me with the taunt of basically get it repaired again or lose it. Everything here is going downhill, and everything here is temporary. John D. Rockefeller was the first person to ever reach a personal fortune of a billion dollars. And at the time of his death in 1937, his personal fortune was worth, in today's terms, a few hundred billion dollars. After he died, someone apparently asked his accountant, because this was all like, the, how much, how much? did he have, like, and the question was, how much did he leave? And his accountant apparently said, he left all of it. You can't take anything with you when you die. There's a great little book by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle, which if you haven't read it, I thoroughly recommend you do. It is a little bit challenging, but it's a lovely little book. It's a short read, but it's got some real treasure in there. And in this book, he writes this. Jesus takes that profound truth, you can't take it with you, 
and adds a stunning qualification. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. But you can invest now in the kingdom of God. And in a way that we can't fully comprehend at this point, our experience of heaven will be different for different ones of us. And a lot of that will be based upon how we invested here, how we spent our lives here and our resources and our money and everything else. Our experience of heaven will be richer for having done so. And it's not just our experience of eternity. What we do with our money now can have a huge impact on the lives of people, both now and also into eternity. I heard about one young man who found himself in considerable debt and as a result experienced crippling anxiety, something he had never experienced before. And he had to have time off work. He couldn't get on public transport And at the age of 28, he had to relearn to control his bladder because the stress and anxiety of that debt was so bad. But he was able to get out of debt, partly through the generosity of other Christians. He's now a leader in his church, free from anxiety, sharing his story to help others. Those who gave to him not only invested in this young man, but in all those who have been touched by his story and by his leadership. Pete and B. Hughes met as young adults here many years ago at Trent. They now lead a thriving church called KXC in King's Cross in London. And when they first moved to London to train and explore church planting, they couldn't afford to rent anything suitable to live in, let alone buy in central London. And on God's prompting, some friends let them live in their house in King's Cross, rent-free, instead of selling their home for what would have been a vast sum of money. And it started as a short-term arrangement, but they ended up being there for five years. Now, not only did that mean that they could afford to be in London, to train and so on, but they fell in love with the area of King's Cross and God stirred them to plant the church they now lead there. And Pete has shared that their friend's generosity was a significant part of the story of their church being planted and a significant part, therefore, ongoingly of the vast, significant, should I say, significant numbers of people coming to faith in Jesus, the kingdom of God being extended in the the area through that church. And we've seen this principle here at Trent. For example, early this month, we baptized 22 people. We heard stories of lives transformed by God. One of the candidates said this, I've come to realize that the answers to my search for meaning can all be found in Jesus Christ. My anxiety is all but gone thanks to his work and power in me. Many of those baptized have met God here at Trent through ministries like Alpha and First Steps with Jesus, through Sunday services, all of which are funded through the generosity of those of you here who give. What you give also enables us to reach out to those in need across the city and beyond, indeed, across the world through our compassion ministries. It enables us to disciple young people, children from the point of birth right through into Trent kids and and Trent youth. And uh, it helps us help people find God, know God. We've got about 50 people right now on the current Alpha course um, who receive a wonderful meal. It's free of charge. It's a wonderful meal each time they come uh, as they explore faith. That meal's paid for by someone. It's paid for by those of you who give. It's an investment in people. 
And uh, at the last Alpha course, 23 people made either first time or recommitments to following Jesus. This is just some of what it means to invest our treasure in the kingdom of God. And the return on that investment is experienced both now and also in heaven. So the first challenge to us all, the decision we're called to consider is, where is our treasure and where is it going to be? The second thing Jesus asks us to consider is this, who are we becoming? In verse 21, he says here, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The focus of our heart determines the kind of person we're becoming. We tend to think if someone's heart is captured, then their money follows. And that is sometimes the case. You know, a guy falls for a girl, starts spending money on things he's never dreamt of spending, on jewelry and expensive restaurants and so on. It does happen that way. We tend to invest our treasure where our heart is. But Jesus is telling us that the opposite dynamic is also true. Our heart goes wherever our treasure goes. Just do an experiment. Invest in some shares in a company and see if you don't find your allegiance to that company grows. You'll suddenly become more interested in how it's doing, keen to see the latest product and celebrate when it does well. You don't have to make like a, a disciplined decision to be focused on that company's success. It's just the natural consequence of the fact that you have invested your treasure there. It's the same, Jesus says, with the kingdom of God. When we invest our treasure in the kingdom of God, in God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, we, if something happens to our hearts, it changes who we are. We get a vision, we get a passion for God and for his purposes. Where our treasure is invested, there our hearts will be also. And then we read on, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, it's not immediately clear to us, is it, what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is talking about investing our treasure, and then suddenly he's talking about our eyes being healthy or unhealthy. But the fact that these two verses are right in the middle of this five-verse passage indicates that Jesus hasn't injected a different thought in here. He's still talking about the same thing. He's still evidently talking about money and possessions, so what is he getting at? If you have a Bible like a New International Version, you could look at the bottom of the page. If you, probably most versions, there'll be footnotes on those two words, healthy and unhealthy. And if you look at that, it's very interesting. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the footnotes, if you read them there, will tell us this. The Greek word used here for healthy implies generous. The Greek word for unhealthy here implies stingy. So assuming the scholars are correct in their understanding of what the words are implying, it seems that Jesus is using a word picture somehow to communicate something like this. Let me just interpose those words in place uh, of healthy and unhealthy. If your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. That sounds like a good deal. But if your eyes are stingy, your whole body will be full of Darkness, whatever that means, it doesn't sound uh, as good, does it? What Jesus seems to be saying here is that when we are stingy, when we focus uh, on money and on material things, it can effectively blind us spiritually. 
But as we focus on God's kingdom, rather than storing up for ourselves treasures on earth, we grow in generosity, or as Tim Keller, Tim Keller puts it, we get a generous eye. And we start to see things we didn't, hadn't seen before. We start to see opportunities to invest our treasure into the kingdom and its purposes, into God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We see opportunities to bless friends and neighbors and church and mission organizations. And we start to see those in need in the way that we've never seen it before. And we can leverage what we have to really be helpful to them. And giving generously to those things simply becomes more and more natural to us. And Jesus faces us with the question, do you want your life to be full of darkness, spiritually veiled by the distorted lens of materialism, or full of light, enlightened to God's leading and his best for us? Because our treasure choices will affect who we are becoming. If you want a wake-up call, you might want to sit down and talk with an elderly person and listen to the conversation, listen to what they talk about. If their life has been focused on the accumulation of material things, they will generally be talking about things, the things they've owned, what they've spent money on. If they've spent their life being self-focused, they will tend to talk endlessly about themselves all the people who've hurt them, about their aches and their pains and so on. But if their life has been focused towards God's kingdom, you will probably find them to be joyful, speaking well of others, encouraging, forgiving, generous, and rejoicing in talking about the Lord and people's lives being changed. My mother lives in the south of France with my younger brother and his wife. She's 92 and right now she is slowly slipping away. She will almost certainly die this week. She's looking forward to being with the Lord. It's okay. She's lived a good life. She's looking forward to being with the Lord. And she's actually frustrate, frustrated each day she wakes up and finds she's still here. It's like, Jesus, take me home. You know, I'm laying immobile in bed, unable to move and so on. But she's, she's peaceful. And she's so looking forward to being with the Lord. But I recently went to visit her just to hold her hand and, and talk with her and say goodbye. It was a very precious and affectionate time. And we prayed together. And um, I thank the Lord for a life well lived. And to the end, she exhibits these qualities that I just mentioned. She has been a faithful follower of Jesus for well over 50 years. A generous, sacrificial giver to the Lord's work, to the local church, and to others throughout that time, even when sometimes finances were extremely tight. She has been joyful even in adversity, loving, forgiving, encouraging. I said to her recently, when she was asking, what's the point of living anymore? You're, you're about the most delightful person to be with. She's peaceful even right now, believing the best of people and always thrilled to hear stories of Jesus changing lives. When I grow up, I hope people will find me to be like my mum. So we would do well to pay attention to the focus of our heart because it determines the kind of person that you and I are becoming. And then finally, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, 
It's pretty unequivocal there. Some people think, well, I think I can serve two masters here. God, I love God and I love a lot of money. You cannot serve both God and money. And he's reducing it down to really the most basic choice of all. Underneath uh, the questions of where our treasure is and who we are becoming is the fundamental question, who is our master? Will the major influence in your life and mine be God or will it be money and possessions? Because Jesus says you cannot serve both no matter how hard you try. In other translations, the word mammon is used instead of money. Many biblical scholars believe that Jesus is talking about the love of money or the idol of money. There's actually a spiritual power behind money. An idol is something that takes the place of God in our hearts. It's something that we worship and we submit to in some way. Many of you will be familiar with the Lord of the Rings where a ring holds such power over people they will do anything for it. One character in particular, Gollum, seeks the ring which he calls precious so much that he becomes unrecognizable as his former self. His desire for the ring masters him rules over him, controlling his decisions and impacting every area of his life. And this is obviously a very extreme picture. I assume that none of us here are quite in the predicament that Gollum found himself in. But hopefully it captures something of what Jesus is saying here. When money and possessions are our focus, they have mastery over us. We lose the freedom which the Lord intends for us and people, we become people we don't actually want to be. It's really important that we talk about money and our relationship with it. Some people think you shouldn't talk about money in church. I think they're wrong, basically. Money is a great servant, but it is a terrible master. And in this series, I hope you will find inspiration, that you'll find joy as we unpack some of the liberating things the Bible says about it. Now, I am, of course, acutely aware we're talking about money in a financially challenging season. There may be many of you here for which this subject is not comfortable. It's a difficult one. You may be feeling overwhelmed right now by financial concerns. You may be worried about whether you'll be able to feed your family or keep yourself warm this winter. You may be concerned about your job, your income, your accommodation. And if that's you, there'll be an opportunity, as always, at the end for someone to pray for you if you'd like that. And if you'd like help in budgeting and managing your finances, one of our areas of ministry here, Step Forward Money Advice, may be able to help you with free confidential debt advice and money management support. Next Sunday's sermon will be John Bodley talking about the whole area of debt. And you'll find an email and phone number on the website. Just go down to the bottom of the homepage, bottom right, click on Step Forward, and you can access it there. In the coming weeks, we're going to be looking further into this subject. But as we conclude this first talk, I wonder what your answer to the questions we looked at might be. Let me ask you them again. Where is your treasure? Is it invested in material things and consumerism? Or are you investing significantly in God's kingdom? An investment which will have an impact for eternity. Secondly, who are you becoming? A generous, healthy-eyed person or stingy and unhealthy? How do you want people to describe you when you are near the end of your life? And thirdly, who is your master? The tyrant, mammon, 
which promises security, happiness, fulfillment, freedom, inner peace, and will continually let you down, or God, who is totally reliable and faithful. My hope for all of us here over these weeks is that we will open ourselves afresh to the word of God on this incredibly important subject, that we really will come to believe that handling money the way God designed us to is going to be absolutely the best path we can personally ever take. That we will be people who are released from the grip of the power of money to live the kind of rewarding, blessed, abundant lives that God has called us to.